Christopher Marco, PhD candidate at the Faculty of Law at the University of Cambridge. Christopher Marco, thank you very much indeed for talking to the CBR podcast series today. You have an interest in the law and new technology. Why have you been studying the Amish? Well, I mean, one of the biggest questions about technology that people are gathering around now is how will things change? How will our world change? People come up with a number of solutions of how you can think about technological change. You can look at it economically. You can look at it socially. You can look at it quite coldly and and arithmetically. And I just sort of struck upon the idea of the Amish because they provide a real world example of how people can organize themselves in our world and sort of mediate the influence of technology in their world in various ways. You've dug down a bit into the history of the Amish and technology. Was there a point at time at which they decided they would not adopt new innovations that were more widely used in society? If you go back to the beginning of Amish history, they were born out of the Anabaptist movement in the European reformations of the 17th century. They were one of three what was called the plain communities along with the Mennonites and the Brethren. And at sort of the heart of what they believed, in addition to believing that baptism was something that should be done in adulthood and by choice, they believed really in resisting the influence of the external world and what they saw as beginnings of industrial change and revolution and really trying to reorient themselves around community, around family, about self-reliance and the importance of labor. So it really is at their core of who they are and what they believe to really think about technology, not not technology in the sense that we think about computers and cars, but things in the world that can influence and mediate their beliefs and what they value within their communities. And when did they soul search over technology? At what point did they decide they weren't going to be the same as everybody else? Well, I mean, one of the reasons why these communities left Europe was persecution by both Catholic and Protestant churches, and then they ended up moving to North America and settling in what is now New York State, Pennsylvania, and the province of Ontario and Canada. So At that time, you really start seeing railroads cutting swaths across the country. You see technology in the form of cameras and the printing press and industrialization really starting to grow up around them. So the original sort of theological impetus that they had to resist the world or keep it at arm's length becomes much more of an imperative because the world is beginning to become more complex around them and population is growing and the temptations of the outside world are multiplying. So they really had to internalize what they wanted within their communities and find a way to embed themselves within the new world while trying to keep it at arm's length. And time itself was changing with the railways and how information was circulating was changing with the printing press. People could no longer tell people or dictate to people what to do, even in the churches, because people could read it for themselves. It was a moment of great change. It was. One thing that's really interesting about the Amish is that amongst all of their core beliefs, one thing that they do not believe is private study of the Bible. They believe that private reading leads to individualistic interpretations of scripture. So when people meet for what we would call church, which happens in houses for them, they do so as a community and as a way to sort of build a communal identity. So they found a way to mediate the influence of even individual interpretation by always defaulting to communal readings and communal interpretations. So were they Luddites? Did they destroy the printing presses and burn the papers? I think they come from the same spirit of the Luddites. But, you know, when people talk about the Luddites, they're always referred to as machine breakers. And if you look at the context in which they operated, 
the Luddites had to break machines that existed. These machines existed in the world, they could perform functions, and the Luddites reacted to them by resisting them. Whereas the Amish kind of take a different view, whereas they resist the creation of the machines in their communities. So they don't ever have to really break machines like the Luddites did. They accomplish their goals by keeping those machines out of their communities. Take us through some of the Amish stories of technology. For instance, they didn't want to have to supply milk to the shops on a Sunday. One thing that is often mischaracterized about them is that they are not strictly technophobes. They are not people who believe that technology is evil, that it's bad, or as we, you know, as certain tribes might believe that possessed by spirits. They're actually quite sophisticated about how they think about technology. And what they have been able to do is sort of institutionalize technological criticism by observing. They see our technology in the world. They see cars. They see phones. They see the internet. And they observe how these things change our world, and they sort of decide amongst themselves, partially on a theological basis, but always on a sociological basis, what they want from technology. So one of the interesting examples that you could choose is the production of milk, whereas in Pennsylvania, New York State, and Ontario, one of the biggest sources of income is agriculture. That comes from their founding principles that they should be self-reliant and learn a trade. So, you know, milk production was a huge deal for them. It was one of the primary sources of income. And there's a story from in the 1960s and 70s in Pennsylvania State. The Pennsylvania State government wanted to control milk production in the state so that people who produced milk can maintain a grade A rating for their milk, which was of higher quality, higher value. And they opposed the Pennsylvania state government quite vociferously. And eventually a compromise was made that they would have two collections on Saturday as opposed to one every day of the week. Uh, and that was a small victory. It was a small means of resistance to a state government, whereas every other farmer in Pennsylvania had to more or less comply to the demands of the state and have seven days a week milk production and collection. And was that a turning point for them? I wouldn't say it was a turning point because it's the kind of small concessions that they have had to make throughout their history in North America. I mean, it's a really colorful example for how they a, a demand was placed upon them by the world, in this case, a government, and how they found a compromise. In that case, they simply just said, no, we are not going to infringe upon our beliefs. And in the U.S., I guess that has a lot of currency because religious freedom is a very big deal in the United States. But it's representative of a sort of continuous negotiation with the outside world that they have to engage in to sort of stay true to an acceptable version of who they want to be and who they want to remain. And what lesson does it have to teach us in the 21st century about the Internet age, a new industrial revolution, some claim. Is there something from this historical study of the Amish that you've done that will give us a pointer to what lies ahead? One thing I'm not trying to say is that I think that the Western world needs to be more Amish or that we need to turn towards God or there's any sort of theological basis for how we can solve the you know very real problems that we're facing. What the Amish do do and what I think they do is help us think about our place in the world and how technology comes to construct our world and demands it places upon us. For instance, I mean, they prize self-reliance, hard work, and labor. So when it comes to building furniture, which is another big part of the Amish economy, they do not want electricity in their communities. So they have to find alternative means of being able to accomplish a goal without 
making decisions that they will just simply not accept. So as opposed to electricity, they might use pneumatic power. You can accomplish the same tasks, some would say just as efficiently, just as greatly, but it allows them to sort of navigate around a demand that the rest of the world would cede to by sort of embracing technology on their own terms continuously. And I think what they tell us is just a way to think about how technology places demands upon us. I see our world as one in which technology exists and we respond to it. A new smartphone comes out, a new piece of technology, it might be AI, it embeds itself in our world and people eventually sort of normalize behaviors around it. In a, in a sense, we don't really have control of what enters into our world. We don't have a meaningful input in what Apple develops or what Google does or what Facebook does or Uber. But the Amish, by being a sort of relatively closed community, are able to sort of mediate what comes in and what comes out of their community. And by doing that, they're able to retain greater control over the values they have, the type of community they want to remain, and indeed their ability to rely upon themselves and their labor to sustain themselves. How have you threaded and woven this story of the Amish into your research on technology and work? You're very interested in the displacement of technology in terms of job losses in the professions. I am. I mean, one of the biggest sort of issues of the 21st century is undoubtedly going to be the influence of robotization and computerization in work. And we've seen a wealth of material come out, not just recently, but over the last 15, 20 years that has sort of talked about what the future of work will be, what place we will have in this future. Sometimes you read this work and come off with the sense that we're all going to be unemployed, we're all going to be out of jobs, and robots are going to replace all of us. But more recently, there's been a lot more sober thinking about really sort of reflecting upon the economic consequences, doing more deeper work. And what I'm trying to do by sort of looking to the Amish of my own work is try to look for models for how other communities in the world have been able to successfully mediate the influence of technology. I'm not in the long term imagining that we could all be more Amish. I don't think that our regulatory models and our government's systems allow us to be like them because we need to exist for them to be what they are. And they need us to make decisions about technology to retain you know, their sense of identity and decide what technology they want in their community. But I think they provide a small and very instructive example for how if you begin with a firm understanding of what you value, what you want out of the world, and what place you want within it, that mediating the influence of technology and being able to be selective, not being able to resist technology writ large, but being able to sort of be discerning about what you allow into your community and being conscious of the consequences of doing so is something that the rest of the world can look on if we can come up with a strategy for how we might be able to realign our political, legal, and economic systems to be able to introduce that forethought, that maybe conscience of forethought into how technology comes to shape our world. Now, as we enter a new year, we move out of 2015 into 2016, the zeitgeist is the future of work. You've got websites devoted to it, newspapers devoting sections of their newspapers to the future of work. What have you read that you think best flags up what might confront society next year? Within 2015, there's been several books that have come out that I think really do a great job at not just contextualizing the problems and scaremongering about robot apocalypses and all of us being unemployed, but really being philosophically reflective on not just what the problems are, but presenting solutions. 
One excellent book would be Eric Brynjolfsson's The Second Machine Age. Martin Ford recently released a book called The Rise of the Robots. And Mark Reef has recently put out a two-volume book called Unemployment, where he talks not just about the consequences of job loss, but the moral imperative of ensuring that mass unemployment is averted in the future. And I think that type of thinking is really contextualizing the debate and really putting some very serious, in-depth and sober attention to what are no longer imminent problems. They are immediate problems. And is there one philosophical phrase from these books that you think, yes, I can be guided by that? Where should we get our guidance in 2016? Do we struggle on at work, drowning in emails, leave our mobile phones with professional organisations who take them away from us at the weekend so that we can head into the country? It's quite a confused world at the moment. It is. Our world is one of increasing complexity. There has never been more possibilities for what we can do, pathways for how we might make a living in the world. And with that complexity comes problems. I think the one thing to consider when we consider technological change and technological advance, I mean, a lot of people will tell you that new job opportunities will always come about. With every new technological paradigm or economic paradigm, we will find a new way in which to find jobs and new types of work will be created. And I suppose that the one thing I would encourage people to keep in mind that there's nothing within economic history or indeed social history that suggests when a new technological paradigm comes about that there are more jobs created than are lost. There's nothing that even suggests that just as many jobs are created than are lost. So if we are facing a loss of jobs in future... A huge loss of jobs. Right. I, and I think that that requires... You know, it, it's easy to, you know, to take the sort of utopian view and say, let's have all industrialists and capitalists reflect upon the importance of uh, community and self-reliance and labor, but it's not feasible and it won't happen within our world. But I do think at the level of government and law, we can, there are hopefully strategies for us to be able to attenuate the influence of technological change without necessarily restricting innovation or being Luddites ourselves, but being more discerning about what paradigms we allow and what the consequences of those paradigms are and not seeing innovation as this sacred cow that cannot be threatened at all all costs. So a quote from one of those books. I would have to say one of the best quotes uh, comes from Mark Reefs on unemployment and he writes, unfortunately however a labor-saving technological innovation need not be more efficient than the method of production it replaces in order to be adopted. And what he's saying there is that not all technological change necessarily needs to be more efficient and that increasingly human labor is not just being replaced, it's being replaced because we are a liability. There might be more inefficient ways of doing something via computerization or robotization, but it offloads the risk of having human error, of having people having to have breaks, unionizing, and all these nasty little human behaviors that get in the way of the smooth operation of business. So I think what that quote illustrates is that it's not just about efficiency and productivity and maximization. It's really making sure that humans play a lesser role in this future, because in some people's thinking, we can't be trusted. As a PhD student, at the University of Cambridge studying law. How do you sum up your employment prospects? The law used to soak up a lot of graduates from universities all over. But now even those processes are being put onto computer. There's not going to be as much necessity for your skills. Is that a 
fair assessment? I, I hope there's necessity in my skills, but I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, if you read information that's put out either by the Bar Standards Board, or the Solicitor's Regulation Authority, one sort of problem within the UK that has been longstanding is that we are educating far more lawyers than there are legal positions to go into. And every year there's a massive deficit of pupillages and training contracts for well-educated, successful smart students who come out of the law schools looking for employment in the world. On top of that, one consequence of computerization is that some of the jobs that those students go into in the paralegal fields or legal research fields will probably be about the among the first to go. We're already seeing examples of AI systems being adopted within law offices. For instance, Denton's is a law firm in Canada which has introduced an AI-based legal research system that is already replicating the work of human paralegals and clerks. And I think that that will be a general trend that will continue for the foreseeable future. And it raises serious questions about the employment prospects for law students going forward within law itself as a profession. Do you think, finally, going into 2016, we should, as a society, be taking a decision on what type of society we want to live in going forward in terms of the robotization of mankind? I definitely think that steps in that direction have to be taken, but I think that there's obviously practical problems for doing that. Ours is a world where communication is instantaneous and virtually unconstrained. Some might even say that we are, as a consequence, sort of losing a centralized identity, whereas, you know, in the Western world, we might loosely agree around the importance of democracy and freedom and liberty and justice, really getting much further than that and understanding what we value. I mean, it's hard to get a real consensus on what that means. Now, there might be any number of reasons for what that might be a symptom of, but I, I do think going forward that one of the greatest challenges of the 21st century will be determining what place in that future we have. I think people can all generally agree that working is important, having a job is important, contributing is important, and finding strategies to ensure that that is possible, not just possible in the barest sense that you will have money coming in, but you will have the ability to have an identity through the work you do and take pride in the work you do is very important because I think that's a very central aspect of our way of life and one worth fighting for. And again, that's where we can learn a little lesson from the Amish. Indeed we can. Christopher, thank you very much indeed for talking to the Centre for Business Research podcast series today about the future of technology and work. I've enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Enjoyed it. Mm -hmm.